chapter 14 at the very end. Y'all know I'm an Old Testament junkie, and if you grew up like I did reading the Old Testament, you might have wondered, or hearing stories of the Old Testament, what about the whole rest of the world? Like, God's obviously focused on Israel all through the Old Testament. What about the rest of the world? You know, were they just abandoned, or did he not care about the rest of the world, or... Were they saved? You know, I, I used to hear as a kid, too, that they were saved by the rest of the world, was saved by believing in what they knew to be God. Um, so I guess if you believed in the Son, that was the same as worshiping Jesus or something. But that's so not true because a lot of reasons, you know, does ignorance equal worship? You know what I mean? And that'd be like saying if I believe my car is an airplane, I can drive it off a cliff and it'll fly, you know? No, just because you believe it's one doesn't make it one. You believe in what it is because of what it is, not because of what you want it to be. You know, if you believe any woman you feel like is your wife, ask your wife if that makes that true. You know what I'm saying? That's not the way it works. So does that mean God is only interested in Israel? And you could ask the same question about the church now. Does that mean God is only interested in the church? Obviously not, because the church has a mission. Well, Israel had a mission just the same. Most famous verse in the Bible, everybody I think knows, John 3.16, makes clear that God's heart is for the whole world and always has been. As we conclude this and and move through this next chapter, you're going to see that. So look at verse 34. This is where they just come from feeding the 5,000 and then walking on the water. And then as they crossed from the feeding of 5,000 to the other side, they were coming from east crossing to the west side and on the west side they came to Gennesaret we referenced it once before it's like two miles from Capernaum so Capernaum was home for Jesus so he's basically back home or within two miles of being back home and when the men uh, of that place excuse me verse 35 and when the men of that place recognized Jesus they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick so of course they raced around and said hey Jesus is here and so um, all the, bring all the sick people. I almost feel like Jesus would get tired of that. You know what I mean? But verse 36, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now, there's all kinds of talk about that. That fringe is that, zitzit is what it might be called, but really it's just the hem of the garment that he would wear. Jews still wear the same garment today. It was given to them in The Old Testament in the law to wear, I'm not going to go back through all that. We talked about it before. You can go back and listen to it in one of the previous podcasts if you want to. Um, But the point being that all of these people that were coming to him were being made well by their faith. I'm not going to camp on that because I want to move on. Verse 1 of chapter 15. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem as well. So they come not, not from Capernaum, but all the way up from Jerusalem. So they know... They're, they're tracing them anyway, but they're all the way up from Jerusalem, from the capital city here, and they're in this, Dave translation, hick town of Gennesaret, where Jesus is. Verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? 
Now, Jesus is headed somewhere here. He's not just randomly strolled back across. He's left east feeding the 5,000. And, and, and keep in mind, this is coming off this feeding of 5,000 people. All right. And he's headed uh, west and he's headed technically to the Gentiles. You're going to see that in a second. But he runs into these elders here and they come after him and they or these leaders, elders, you could say that scribes. Pharisees, rulers, lawgivers, and they say, why does he break the tradition of the elders so they don't wash their hands when they eat? They had these oral traditions that were passed down for years and years. And then those oral traditions in about the third century A.D. became what is known as the Mishnah, because they wrote it all down. And then the Jews made commentary on the commentary, and that became the Talmud over time. So you have these... You have these commentaries on commentaries that were originally oral traditions that came off of the law. And it's like this. Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've sinned. And he also said at one point, if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. So what they might say then is they might take that and make an oral tradition that says cut your eyes out literally. Because the last thing you want to do is slip up and sin. So it's better if you just cut them out of there. They put fences around things. So they said, hey, if the law says don't look at it, then it's probably, or don't touch it, then it's probably best if you don't even look at it. And if touching it is a possibility and looking at it is not enough, then don't even be in the same place as it. So they start putting all these laws in place that didn't, they weren't part of God's word, but they were oral traditions. To say that they were wrong is not necessarily the point. Some of them might have been good advice. But they became, look what he says, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So they're, they've turned it into a, a law, more or less. And what they mean by washing hands, they don't mean like we, like we talk about where, hey, you're going to get a disease because your hands are dirty. What do they mean by washing your hands? Ceremonially, correct, Ceremoni- you're ceremonially washing your hands. So you're not doing it to remove dirt. You're doing it to remove what? Maybe sin. Really, the picture is you're removing filth in a, in a spiritual or uh, symbolic sense. So the filth would be Gentiles. Uh, an animal you might have pet, or sick people. What's he been doing all this time? Touching all these sick people. These sick people have been touching him. And the disciples of him, they've been pushing against them, whatever. And then they go to eat, and they don't don't wash themselves of these gross people. That's the picture that's going on here. You got gross people. You have Gentiles or needy people. People, these Pharisees and scribes floated. You know what I'm saying? They didn't touch nobody. Nobody touched them, and they didn't touch anybody. And if they did touch somebody, before they'd put anything in their body, they'd go wash their hands to get that person off of them. You know what I'm saying? God was pretty harsh about these people and about these times. In fact, he told, God said in the Old Testament that the time was going to come when he was going to Even though he required them to keep the laws, his own laws, he was going to strip them even of what he had blessed them with. Because in a lot of ways, these laws that he gave them were blessings. Let me show you an example. Go back to Isaiah chapter 1. While you're going there, I'll tell you this one. You can note in Hosea chapter 2 verse 10. 
God says, now I'll uncover Israel's lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to her joy, her feasts. That's the Old Testament feasts that they're supposed to keep. Her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I'll get rid of all of them. So Jesus is saying to Jerusalem, the day's going to come when I'm going to turn her joy into sorrow, and I'll take away her Sabbaths. Well, weren't they supposed to keep the Sabbath? He said, I'm going to take it away from you. Isaiah chapter 1 Verse 13, God speaking through Isaiah to the people of Israel, bring no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me. Wasn't they were supposed to bring incense? He's saying it's disgusting to me. New moon, Sabbath. New moon is the calendar, is identifying a calendar date. Don't get worked up over it like it's some kind of, you know, witchcraft thing. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about ceremonies that were based off the, the moon, the cycle of the moon, okay? New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. I can't, I can't take it no more. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, appointed, which means they were set there to be kept. My, God says this now, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. In other words, you, what he's saying is you're keeping my Sabbaths and I can't stand it any longer. Think about that now. You're doing what my word says do and I can't stand it anymore. I hate it. When you spread out your hands, like in worship, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Doesn't mean they were murderers. Means guilt is on them. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of the deeds from before my eyes. Stop doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He goes on and on. But what's he saying here? Why is he disgusted by them being obedient in, in the way of keeping the Sabbaths anyway? Or the feasts or whatever? It's just ritual. It's just ritual. They don't care. How does he know they don't care? I mean, he knows their heart. Yeah, but even in the passage, he tells you, learn to do good. Stop doing evil. He's saying all these other things you are doing, but you're showing up on the date, the calendar date, like you're supposed to. Modern day language, you live like the devil all week, but you come to church on Sunday. You know what I mean? Same deal. Aren't you supposed to come to church? What if you came to church and God said, I'm sick of seeing your face? You know what I'm saying? That in a lot of ways is, is what he's saying. I'm sick of it. And the irony is he's almost directly addressing ahead of time. Now, in Isaiah's time, he is talking to the people of his time. And ultimately, Babylon's going to be judgment on them. But Jesus equates that even more specifically to this generation that he's talking to. Go back to Matthew 15 and look what he says here. In verse 3, he says, Jesus responds, and he says... I love Jesus never directly justifies anything. He's not going to get sucked into any kind of argument over why. He didn't have to justify anything. Instead, he asked them to justify something. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? I love that. They said, why do your disciples break tradition? He says, why do you, why do you break the law of God for the sake of your tradition? I mean, this is God. But Jesus is literally setting scripture above everything. And this is huge now. Okay, this is huge. 
He's literally set in scripture above everything. And the, the trick here, and I'll explain what he, what his example is, but the trick here is, and, I, and this is just facts. This has been something that has separated worship for a long time. In fact, Catholic and Protestant is set apart by this. The Pope is the ultimate authority of the Catholic Church. The authority. If the Pope says it, it's the law. It's the rule. Even if it were to contradict Scripture, he has the authority to overwrite that. He does. Popal supremacy. He has the right to overwrite that because the church is the ultimate authority, even over the word of God. We say as Protestants that the word of God is over all things, that nothing, there's no higher voice than the word of God. Uh, Muslims are the same way. I don't have time to go into it all, but you can read Muslim history and you have the Shias and the Sunnis. And they're largely separated. There's, there's more details, but they're largely separated by the direct link to Muhammad in terms of family or the Quran. Is the Quran the highest authority or is the lineage to the man the highest authority? Is the same kind of argument. So Jesus is God and yet he's saying the word of God. He, all he had to do is say, I said so. You know what I mean? But instead, he's saying the law of God is higher. The law of God is higher even than your word. I don't care if you're the Pharisees. I don't care if you're the scribes. I don't care who you are. Jesus has said the law is even higher. So verse 4, Matthew 15, verse 4, it says, For God commanded, so he gives an example. of He didn't just make that up. He said, here's, here's what I mean. God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles his father or mother or curses or same word will sure, must surely die. Fifth commandment. Everybody always talks about it. it's the first commandment with a blessing. It's also the first commandment with a curse. It goes both ways. It has a curse and a blessing. You honor your father and mother. Um, you'll be blessed. You don't. And you're going to die. And it's restated multiple places. It's restated in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, and Leviticus. He says, but you say, now just put your brain around that for a minute. Verse 5 says, but you say. It's almost exactly the opposite of what Christ was saying in chapter 5 and 6 and 7 when he said, you say, you have heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I say, if you look at a woman, you've already done it. You have heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say, you know, if you look at your brother with hate in your heart, you've already done it. He's raising the bar. In a sense, not literally, but in a sense, he's, he's equating the true meaning of what those laws meant. But here he says, God said, but you say, and, and you lower the bar. He says, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. Some translations would say Corbin means the same thing, devoted to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of tradition, you made void the word of God. What he means is, he's saying, <clears throat> if you, your responsibility is to take care of your parents in their old age. So if you have been setting apart money, or if you have money, or a plan, or a home, or whatever, in order to take care of your family, if you want to be super holy, and give it to the church, or the temple, whatever, instead, then you're forgiven for abandoning your parents. 
So leaving your parents to fend for themselves in their old age by giving all of your stuff to the temple, devoting it to God in appearance anyway, was was okay. That was acceptable. Now, that's really cool on two sides. Number one, that, that tells you that Jesus has a high respect for taking care of your family. I mean, a high respect for taking care of your family. And two, it tells you, now I'm not saying don't give to the church. Please don't miss that. That's not what I'm saying at all. My brain would want to think that. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to think if I gave, everything I, ha- I gave everything I had to the church, every single thing I have to be used for the kingdom of God, and I'll just trust God that he'll take care of my responsibilities to my family? And he, Jesus even said that's unbiblical. That's unscriptural. And, and the fact that you're, you are endorsing that kind of thing means you're violating the word of God to say it. You're voiding the word of God. You're saying God's word is, it means like you take a check and you stamp void on it. What does it mean? There's no value. Yeah, it doesn't count. Whatever the number amount on that check is means nothing now. It has no value. He says, so you're taking the word of God and you're saying it has no value and you're putting all the value in what you say instead. Now... <laughs> As if that's bad enough, he stamps on there his opinion of them. Verse 7, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy, look at this, of you when he said, this people or this generation, verse 8 of chapter 15 of Matthew, this generation honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And Jesus is making a harsh point here. But again, notice, even as the Son of God, even as the Word Himself, He's referencing Scripture. I love that. He's not arguing with them just from authority. He's arguing with them from Scripture. So He points them back to the Word and says, not only do you violate the Word, but the Word talks about you. That's pretty scary. It's actually a Kesher in a sense, too. What a Kesher is, is, you know... When you put it, when you see a phrase or a piece of a phrase or perhaps a verse quoted, it should trigger the hearer to imagine the whole passage. So, for instance, if I said jingle bells, jingle bells, yeah, your brain already starts singing the rest of the song. And not only that, you think of context. What's the context? Christmas immediately. So your brain goes to all these images of Christmas. And even if it's only for a second, it just happens. A second I say jingle bells, jingle bells. Your brain hears the tune, you think about Christmas, you got all those images in your head. So when he quotes this verse, he's not just pulling that verse out. He's talking to scribes and Pharisees, highly likely would have had it memorized. Um, And so immediately their brain should go back to that passage and they should be thinking through what he's saying in that passage. That's some heavy, heavy stuff. He is throwing them down. I mean... Absolutely throwing them down. Look at verse 10. He says, and he called the people to him. And he said, so first of all, he slams those guys. And then he gets the people's attention and says, listen up. All right. And he says, hear and understand. Which is funny because in Isaiah, he was literally saying they're not going to hear or understand. Now he's telling them, not from these guys. But now he's telling them, hear and understand. Verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. It's not medical, it's moral. He says it's not about, you know, cleanliness, it's not about all that, it's about what comes out of you. 
Then the disciples came and they said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He said, good. No, I'm kidding. But that's really what, you know, obviously he didn't care. He wanted to offend them. So I love that the disciples are still worried about that. Why do you think they're worried about that? Yeah, it's not that they're afraid that he's going to get killed. I don't think that thought even really crossed their mind yet. I mean, it's that these are the guys, man, Jesus, you realize these, you know, if they don't pray over your body, you don't go to heaven. You know what I'm saying? In a sense. I mean, the, the idea that you don't want, don't, hey, be careful, we don't offend these guys, which tells you what they, what about Jesus and them? Even though they just saw him walk on the water, they still are struggling to accept who he is. And I get that. I get that. I mean, if these are the people you listen to all your life and these are the people in the temple and these are the authorities and all this other stuff, you know, all of a sudden now you got Jesus defying them. That would be a little bit hard. I mean, I get that. That'd be, that would be a little bit hard. It'd be just like when Jesus told them that the temple was going to come down. How's the temple going to come down? Temple's been around since David, Solomon's time, excuse me. Thousands, thousand years. Nine hundred years, something like that. How in the world is, the, is that going to happen? But in any event, they said we're offended. They were offended. And he said, as he always does, little parable, every plant that my father has not planted will be rooted up. Pretty cool, he says, by the way, again, my father. Just strong language for him to be using. My father. Every plant that my father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both are going to fall into a pit. Man. That's harsh language out of Jesus, isn't it? Why doesn't he let them alone? Don't fight with them. Don't. I mean, now he's had a confrontation here, but he's walking away from He's like, don't fight with them. Don't argue with them. Let them do what they do. Why would he say that? They're not going to hear it. And I'm telling you, this is something that that, that we have to be careful of, too, is, hey, they ain't going to listen to it anyway, so I'm just going to sit here and do my thing and wait till they get hungry for it. Um but also, not engage in an argument when it's real clear that the person is not going to hear it. The guy that we were talking about that came over to my house, that although, you know, what he came for was not what I was thinking it was about, he was a Muslim and he was from Pakistan. The reason that came up is because he asked what I was going to Phoenix for, and I told him. But we had the most awesome conversation, I mean, about faith and family and stuff, which was fine. There's no chance that dude is going to say the, in that moment, hey, you know what? I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ today. And I, let me take that back. Let me take that back. I can't say there's no chance. But it was clear from my experience talking to him that was not going to happen. Now, I could have argued with him about it. I could have said your sin's going to take you straight to hell if you died today. Do you know what's going to blah, blah, blah. I could do all that if I wanted, but that's not, that's not going to get there either. But I also didn't not talk about it. So Jesus has already made the point. It's not like he's not talking about it. He's already made the point. He's already done these miracles. He's doing these things. He's doing, he's witnessing, if you want to call it that. But what he's telling his disciples here is let those alone. And if, if people are going to follow them, let them follow. 
because God, my father did not plant them. Now, that's some heavy stuff, and, and I don't care how you feel about it. It's there. It's there throughout all of Scripture, especially in John. John's Gospel, it's there throughout all of that, that God's hand is involved in all of it, in salvation and everything. And there's a good truth there. That means that if God's hand planted the person, then if you're the one that happens to be there, and shares the gospel with that person, and they belong to the Lord already, they're going to respond to you. 100% guaranteed going to respond to you. And if God's hand has not planted that person, then you can beat your head to the wall, but even Jesus walked away. You know, and, and I know there's some heavy thought in that. I got it. But I'm just telling you from the text we're reading, there it is. Okay, well, let's go on. He says, but Peter explained, but Peter said to him, Peter always speaks up, man. I love Peter. Peter's like, hey, you want to break that down for us, Jesus? <laughs> verse 15, he says, you want to break that down? And verse 16, Jesus says, are you still without understanding? Are you still so dull? Some say he's like, I mean, God, can you, you don't even get that. You know what I'm saying? He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled out of the body? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, excuse me, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. He's actually kind of doing the reverse of what that Isaiah passage said. It's, it's not your, it's, it's your actions that are proving that your worship doesn't matter. In verse 20, he says, these are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Sabbath law was there. We've talked about it a lot. They had food laws. There are food laws in the Bible. They're in Leviticus. Do we keep food laws today? Is it okay to eat pork? Is it okay to eat bacon? I mean, depending on what Baptist church you go into, they'll fight about that all day. Say uh, catfish, you know, all these kind of things. Um, if it is okay to eat it. Did Jesus just erase it for the heck of it? Or what was the deal with that? What was the point of it in the first place? People say, well, he gave the food laws because those things are bad for you anyway. It's not healthy to eat uh, pork. It's not healthy to eat chocolate. You know what I mean? There's a lot of things that will kill you to eat besides the things that are listed on the food laws. Right? So, uh, first of all, let's rule out it was not about health that they were told not to eat these particular things. What was the point of the food laws ultimately? To set them apart. Go, girl, that's right. Set them apart. That's what it was for. It was so that so that they were a light to other people, to other nations. They refused certain foods. What? There's a great example of that put into practice in the Bible. When is it? Do you know? Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is offered by a pagan king in a pagan country, Gentile nations who know nothing of God's laws. He is offered a chance to eat the best of the best of the best of the best, the king's table, the best food you could possibly eat. And he refuses it because, why? Would he die instantly if he ate that food? No. Is he going to get sick if he eats that food? No. Not necessarily. What did refusing to eat that food do? It showed that pagan king that his God was God. 
you can read the story in your own time, but it gave him a chance to make a stand. It gave him a, a place to stand on to say, I believe in what my God says. And my God said not to touch these things, so I'm not going to eat them if that's okay with you. Well, they said, no, it's not okay with you, with us because you'll waste away. And he said, well, let God show you that we won't. And you know the story, they don't. In fact, they look better afterwards than beforehand. So it wasn't so much about don't eat these things because they'll kill you. It was about don't eat these things. And listen, if you really believe me, if you love me, if you know who I am and you trust me, then I'll know that and so will everybody else because you won't eat it. And bacon might be real good, but you won't touch it because you love me. And I asked you not to do that, and that will set you apart to other people who will say, why in the world would you not eat this? It's fantastic. And he didn't just say vegetarian, because there's plenty of people that are that. He got very specific on the foods. So you had to identify as being Jewish in the sense that these were the foods that I'm not eating For my God to show it, and it was a light to the nations. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Let's move forward in time a little bit from Jesus' time. Paul has a lot of commentary on this whole thing, but here's what Paul says, and and we'll come back to Matthew, but here's what Paul says about the foods. And we'll look at a couple of places before we finish, but Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, to the church in Colossae, let, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So all of these laws, don't let anybody judge you on these law, on, uh, regarding all these laws. What would they be judging them on? Why are you eating that? You shouldn't be eating that. Law says you shouldn't eat that. Why are you worshiping on Sunday? Law says you should be keeping the Sabbath. You know, we've talked about that already. What's the Sabbath for? Rest, not worship, although worship should be part of your daily life. The sat, what we do on Sunday is not the Sabbath. We come to church on Sunday to worship Jesus together corporately. That's not a Sabbath. A Sabbath is a rest. Now we can equate that we worship during rest, but Sabbath was, was not designed to come to the temple, not designed to come to the tabernacle, the, 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 the synagogue or any of that, although that became tradition. The Sabbath's design was to rest, be home with your family. Um, but in any event, he says, don't let anybody judge you on all these things. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, he's saying, those were the shadow on the floor. How does the shadow get on the floor? The light is shining on something, and that something is casting a shadow. Can you touch the shadow? Can you pick the shadow up? Can you hold the shadow? No. It has nothing. It's nothing. It is just a shadow. The thing that you can touch, that you can know that is real, is what casts the shadow. And he's saying Christ is what casts the shadow. We have him. What are you clinging to a shadow in the floor for? You have the one. You have the one. He says, let no one disqualify you. In other words, don't let anybody tell you you're lost, insisting on uh, asceticism, which is humility, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind or the things that feel good or feel right, and not holding fast to the head. Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. In other words, don't make it about all of your actions and deeds and 
humility and behavior and keeping the law and doing all these. Don't, don't, don't anybody tell you it's about that. Just hold on to him. So I said, just hold on to him. If with Christ you died to the elementary, elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations or to laws? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to these things that all perish as they are used. In other words, if you eat it, it's gone. It dissolves in your body, and as Jesus said, it's expelled. Why are you making it something holy? That's what he's saying. And then he says, according to human precepts and teachings, or as Jesus said, to the the traditions of men. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and humility and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're not going to help you stop sinning. That's some heavy, think about that. He didn't say they're not going to help you get to heaven. He said they're not going to help you stop sinning. Every Sabbath you want to keep, you can keep it. You can never touch any unclean food for the rest of your life. But it didn't say that's going to get you to heaven. Paul said that's not going to help you stop sinning. So what's his point? You are a sinner. Those laws and keeping those laws never made you not a sinner. (laughs) The issue is that you are a sinner. What you need is Christ. Go back to chapter 15 of Matthew, and let's move forward real quick. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew. It's a heavy word. Got away. You see him continuing to withdraw from the Jewish people, honestly. And it says, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. The region is kind of northeast of of uh, Israel in Numbers chapter 13 it is referred to as Canaanite land and it was definitely pagan territory verse 22 uh, and behold a Canaanite woman from that region came out now this is heavy right here but this is also one of my favorite texts in the Bible okay but listen in the context keep in mind I don't think the Pharisees were there because I don't think they'd have gone near Tyre Sidon but Keep in mind, he's among Gentiles, and keep in mind that all this holy, keeping the law, don't touch what's unclean, uh, we're so much better than the Gentiles mentality, he's just been hearing left and right. His disciples don't even, hey, you offended the Pharisees, oh my, you know. And now he's standing here among these Gentiles, okay? So keep that kind of context in your head. And he says, to a Canaanite woman from the region who came out. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord. Not, she's not calling him God there. She's just calling him ruler, Lord, son of David. But she is calling him something there. What's she calling him by saying son of David? Huh? Messiah. What's Messiah mean? Savior. Savior is there another word for it. Can't, literally, literally, it's anointed one. But who was it that was anointed? What were you anointed? King. So she's in essence calling him the rightful king of Israel as well as Messiah, yes. Alright? So it's calling him king, Lord, King, Lord, Son of David, King, Messiah. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now what's even more amazing about this is she's not even coming for herself. It's not even about her, you know, the, the blood order as the woman before had or any of that. This is, she's coming for her daughter. But he did not answer her a 
word. Now, let's just put that into perspective. You got all these crowds around him. You got his disciples with him. He's in this pagan Gentile land. He's this Jewish ruler and this woman, or Jewish man, I'm sorry, prophet, whatever, in, in their eyes. And this woman comes up and throws herself at his feet and screaming at him, please, calls him Lord, calls him son of David, king, and says, heal my daughter. She's oppressed by a demon. And he ignores her. Ignores her. I'd be like, what? And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. One, trans- one commentary said that what they're actually saying is heal her so she'll go on. I don't think so. I think they're saying get this disgusting woman away. I think they're saying her screaming is driving us crazy. If you're not going to do anything about it, which you obviously aren't, and we don't blame you, make her go away. Tell her to go on. Imagine this now. Put yourself in her shoes. Imagine this. Tell her to go, his own disciples saying, go away, he's sick of hearing her scream. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent. So he, now he looks at her and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm not here for you. Imagine Jesus tell you that. You know, this Jewish man among the Canaanite people. And literally this woman comes up begging and first he straight up ignores her. And then second of all, he turns around and looks at her and says, I am not here for you. I didn't come here for you. I'm just here for my people. I mean, this is Jesus is saying this to her. This is happening. I mean, it messes with your theology a little bit. <laughs> but he's saying it. Verse 25. And she came, literally, it's, 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 she throws herself and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. I mean, what else does this woman got to do? And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. <clears throat> I don't know about y'all, but that's when I checked out. I got way, too, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to you. My pride would be so high at that point. Remember now, she's not bleeding to death, dying to death. She's talk, only for her daughter here. But the man has ignored her, though she's begging and screaming and making a fool of herself to all of her friends and all these people of her nation. She's recognized right from the start who he is when even his own disciples don't. And yet he said, totally ignores her and then says, I didn't come here for you. And then calls her a dog. And in the Jewish language, some say that's a reference to pet. And I I get there's some illusion there but that's that's not dog was to the to the hebrew people a dog was a gentile word dog pig those were both words he is using a very slanderous very ugly word not cussing at her but i mean it's not far how how are you going to react to that what would you do Who's the focus of the discussion between here? He's addressing this woman, but it's not the crowd. It's Jesus and his disciples. Remember what I told you, the context of, hey, you insulted the Pharisees. And he's illustrating a point. He's almost, in a sense, behaving like a Pharisee for a moment. Almost. But this woman is not going to be deterred. She is not going to go away. She is not going anywhere else. And she doesn't care if she's the one being insulted. She don't care. 
Because she has, like you said, her love for her child, but she knows who he is. Look at verse 26. And he answered, it's not right to take from the, throw it to the dogs. And she said, one of the greatest verses in the Bible to me. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dog, look what she said there, by the way. Yes, Lord. You're right, God. It's not right for you to throw what's the children's to the dogs. She accepted that she's a dog. Yeah, I'll take that. But even the dogs get the crumbs from the, that fall from the master, master's table. Good grief, you cannot find humility like that in the Bible. I mean, you just, and what's even more amazing is this, this woman, until we get to heaven, will be known as a Canaanite woman. You can't even get her name. You don't have Mary, Mary Magdalene. You don't have any of that. This is just a Canaanite woman. But I think the most humble woman in the whole Bible, Dave's opinion. I don't think you'll find a more humble person, perhaps, in the whole Bible. That would say, in front of all of that, yes, Lord, but yes, I am a dog. But can I have a crumb? I'll, I'll take a crumb. If there is a prosperity gospel, this is about as far opposite as you can get. You know what I'm saying? She's not naming and claiming anything. She's calling herself a dog, accepting that the Lord would call her a filthy sinner and begging her, begging, begging him to give her even a crumb, even a crumb. It says, verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Now, you know, Jesus knew this was coming, man. He's walking her through it the whole way. Come on, girl. You know what I'm saying? Come on, girl. You know? And he's as great as your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. I love, too, that he didn't go anywhere. He just said, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Immediately, her, her daughter as well. And then uh, the story just goes right on. But hold on, because the rest of it, it goes together. Watch this. Verse 29. Jesus went on from there. We're going to finish up here quick, but I'm trying to get to the, the bookend here. Verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He probably came over the top and came back down uh, to the Decapolis area, which we've talked about before. That was a Gentile area where there were ten cities, ten Gentile cities. We talked about it back in chapter 4. I won't go back into that. But I will say that he's coming to stay among, I believe, among Gentiles. Most commentaries do too, and I'll show you why in a second. But he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. And so the crowds wondered or were in awe is the idea. When they saw the mute speaking, the cripple healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is one reason why, myself included, you, I believe he's still dealing with Gentiles because it doesn't say they glorify God. It says they glorify the God of Israel. Also note, just missionally speaking, um, he's about to feed, feed them in the same miraculous way that he fed the others. But when he fed the 5,000, they were Jewish people by majority, and he preached. And he preached, and he preached, and he preached the word to them because they should have known the word. They had the word. These, I'm not saying he didn't preach the word. He probably did. Surely talk about it. But his focus and all we're told that he does is heal. Because they don't have the word like the Jewish people would have had it. So he ministers to them. Ministers and ministers and reveals himself 
through his ministry, and they begin just the same to worship the God of Israel, or at least glorify the God of Israel. Verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples in that moment to him, and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. That's funny because the last time the the disciples came on behalf of their own people and said, send them away because it's getting late. They need to go find something to eat. One day. These guys have been with them for three days. And Jesus is now saying, hey, I have compassion on them. These are the Gentiles now, I believe. I have compassion on them. Not to say there's no Jews there, but I have compassion on them. I'm going to feed them. I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. So he's saying, I'm not going to send them away. I'm not willing to do that. It's a total different posture out of Jesus than before. And it says in verse 33, and the disciples said, where do we get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? <laughs> I mean, it hadn't been that long. A week, a week, few weeks, maybe. And in verse 34, and Jesus said to them, Duh. How many loaves do we have? We're going to go back through this again. How many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And I think at this point, I think they know what's up. I think they know what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Um, and directing the crowds to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. Just like before, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So just the same way as we talked with the 5,000, that Jesus provided what the people needed and empowered the disciples to go feed these 5,000 Jewish people. Now he's providing what the people need, and he's giving it to the disciples to go feed these 4,000 Gentile people. And there might have, obviously there would have been more, talking about men only, so who knows how many, but less than before, but still a lot. And he took, uh, let's see, gave him a crowd, verse 37. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken leftover pieces. Some people say that you're talking about seven being the number of completeness. It could. I've heard some people reference how seven refers to Gentiles and specifically, but I can't remember exactly the story behind that. But the bigger point for me is you've got two feedings here and they're broken up. He had 5,000 that Jesus fed Jewish people, and there were 12 baskets left, 12 tribes of Israel. Now you have 4,000 Gentiles fed, and there's seven baskets left. And if that number is completion, it does mean completion in the word. But if that's the case, then he's testifying in that sense that he is enough for all, or he came to provide for all. And he just empowered the disciples to feed the Gentiles too. And this whole argument of what goes into the body versus what comes out of the body and all this kind of thing. And here he's feeding both Jews and Gentiles. And it says, those that who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region uh, of Magadan. So, book ended here by these two feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. And I asked, what about, what about Israel in the beginning? You know, what about the rest of the world if God's focus was on Israel? What about the rest of the world? God's focus has always been on the whole world. God's focus has always been on... When he called Abraham, Abraham was not an Israelite. Abraham was not even a Hebrew. He became the first Hebrew. Abraham was a, a Babylonian, technically Chaldean, same thing. He called him from a pagan land. He's the father of the, of the Irish. 
That's what's up. He's the father, father of the, the Israelite people, father of the Hebrews, you know. But he said, listen to me, he said in Genesis chapter 12, when he called Abraham, when he called him, he said, you will be a blessing to all nations will be blessed through you. All nations. From that moment, God's focus was on all nations. He told him later on that he would bless him and he would become a great nation and all nations would be blessed through him. When Israel became a nation um, in chapter what 49, there's a bunch of chapters, but in Isaiah chapter 49 is one of them. It said that Israel would be a light to the nation. Nations. In Isaiah 60, it talks about his word. And in 51, it talks about his word being a light to the nations. Jesus said in John chapter 9, I believe, I am the light of the world. Jesus told his disciples, you are the light of the world. Told the church, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You guys know all this. Acts chapter 10, when it all rolls out, Peter goes to Cornelius' place. And interestingly enough, the illustration and the vision that Peter sees is of a clean and unclean food to illustrate that the Gentiles are welcome. And Peter leads this Cornelius guy to the Lord. The Holy Spirit falls and the disciples freak out. Oh, wow. Then to the Gentiles too. You know, it's been the case the whole time. Let me conclude with this. Go to Romans chapter 14. You can let go of that. Go to Romans chapter 14 really fast. And I'll show you how we as a church, you want a practical response. It's real easy. So how do, how do we process this? How do we deal with this in terms of what you eat, what you don't eat, what comes from the heart, all that kind of thing. It says in verse 1, and there's a lot here, so I'm going to do it really fast. And you can go back and study it in your own time because we're going through Matthew. But in Romans chapter 14, as for the one who is weak in his faith, welcome him, but don't quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. While the weak person eats only vegetables. I like how he says the weak person's vegetarian. Just kidding, though. That's not, not, not fair to say that. In fact, he's saying, in fact, he's saying the opposite. Don't do that. Okay, so I'm just making a joke. Don't do that. Let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let no one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment? On the servant of another, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. In other words, it's, it's between him and God. Between him and God. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems a day better than another. So first of all, he talked about the food, what you eat, food laws. It's not, he's talking about what, you know, if you see somebody that's gluttonous or something like that, yeah, that's a different thing. He's talking about breaking food laws or keeping food laws. If you have a conviction about being vegetarian, not eating meat, don't beat them up. Who cares? If you're fine with eating any meat, it's okay. And by the way, if you go back to Genesis 10, I think it is, somewhere around there, as soon as they come out of the ark, God gives all, all animals to man for food. So the food laws did not, that didn't go back to Genesis chapter 1. That came along in Moses' day. Before that, they were free to eat anything. So if anything, Jesus just reset things to where they were. All food is clean like it was to begin with because of him. Okay, but in any event, it says don't pass judgment. If somebody wants to be vegetarian, hey, it's cool. Let them do it. But don't that doesn't mean you have to be. Don't let them impose it on you. If one esteems one day like a Sabbath is greater than another, while one esteems all days are alike, each one should do what they're convinced in his own mind, in your own heart. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. 
While the other abstains, he abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, um, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Okay? Why do you, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on a brother? There's a key. Brothers. Lost people, you can't, you can't expect lost people to understand it anyway because they're lost. They're not in the Word. You can't hold them accountable to a standard you're keeping according to the Bible. They don't believe the Bible. So he's talking about brothers here, okay? He's saying, we'll all stand before the Lord, he'll judge us, and we'll all give account of ourselves to him. Verse 13, don't, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in front of a brother. I'll summarize the rest of it for the sake of time. He's saying, you can eat what you want to eat. And I'm going to say this carefully. You can drink what you want to drink. But there are things he says don't do. Don't be gluttonous. Don't be drunk. You know, these kind of things. But right here what he's saying is, don't you dare give anybody a reason to stumble. A brother now. Don't give anybody a reason to stumble. If you know somebody who is a brother who's had an alcohol problem in their life, don't I don't care if God said it's okay for you to have a glass of wine with your sake. Don't you dare do it in front of him or her. That's what he's saying. If you... Uh, no, you're out with a friend and they don't eat meat and they only eat veg, they only eat, they're vegetarian. They feel convicted that they should be vegetarian and they're struggling with that or they're having a hard time with that. Don't get a steak and munch down right in front of them. That's what he's saying. Don't be a stumbling block for somebody. Just eat what they're eating. Support them. Now, if you have a conviction about it, then you deal with that. If you're around somebody and you, God's told you, you don't you dare touch alcohol. And you're around somebody who calls them, calls themselves a Christian and that's your idea in your mind. They call themselves a Christian, but here they're having a glass of wine. Hey, don't let that cause you to, don't let that cause you to stumble. Don't turn around and go after them either. You know what I mean? You say, all right, that's between them and God. And if it's wrong for them to be doing that, God will tear them up. If they're a believer, if they're not a believer, then if they get plastered drunk, you can't say nothing about it. They're not a believer. I mean, you can tell them about the Lord, but that's not what he's talking about. Does that make sense? Okay, he says here, verse 20, do not, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. Everything is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another one stumble by what he eats. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you may have, it says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Keep it at home, if that's the case. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating not from faith. So what he's saying there is, if you're not really sure, don't do it. If you've got conviction and you're not really sure, then don't do it. Don't do it. And then he ends, and you can read chapter 15, but what's awesome is he ends in chapter 15 with saying, follow the example of Christ. Look at verse 8 of chapter 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness, the word, in order to confirm the promises of the word to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people's nations extol him. And again, in Isaiah, the root of Jesse will come, and he will arise to rule the Gentiles, and he will, and in him will the Gentiles hope. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's always been the story. It's always been the story. And the easiest way that we respond is we hold to that verse that says they will know we are his disciples by what? Our love for one another. The way we love as he, as he loved also. Let me pray.